This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! And now, it's time for Coach Hogg's Locker Room. Good morning, good morning. Coach Hogg here in the Coach Hogg locker room, really. Here, really, actually, inside the Law Studio in the Manly Warthog Command Center. In the Coach Hogg locker room for a while here. And uh, we're going to have a, a round-the-clock surveillance, of course, by crime prevention, which protects the ward uh, Manly Man Cave, if you will. A little frosty morning. We'll cover that as uh, we get uh, farther into the show. Well, 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 what can we say, uh, you know, if we uh, um, have to take a look at uh, uh, the weekend, you got to say it's been filled with NFL football games. I don't see myself yet on my main frame here. Maybe I'll do that in a minute. Um, don't uh, see myself on the big computer. See myself on the small one here. But, um, yeah, if you are a football fan or if you're not a football fan, you can't avoid uh, what's happened this weekend. Uh, and I got to I got to tell you, the NFL seems to have it figured out. There's a lot of parity in these leagues right now in these games, and they're exciting games. And um, highly refined athletes are playing very critical positions, and a lot of teamwork and uh, practice that goes into this is really quite something. Uh, we don't see any of the political statements too much anymore that I'm aware of. Anyway, people are very very happy to see that that there's no inundation or intrusion of political statements. The most thrilling game for yours truly, and the one which I really had given up on, I have to admit, I'm never wrong, but was I wrong on this? I said, turn out the lights, as uh, uh, Don Merrith used to say, the party's over, when uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars went so far behind in the first half, and the wonder boy, uh, Trevor Lawrence, uh, threw four interceptions. Now, he is a wonder boy. He's only 23 years old. Imagine that. And playing in these big games in the NFL under this pressure, and they had a pretty good defense for him. They shut down all the stuff short, and um, they didn't catch on to that for a while. They were really in the hole at the end of the first half, and yours truly, being the internal optimist, right, said, put out the lights, it's over. Uh, and I woke up, and it was about a minute, 40 seconds left to go. I was dozing. And I'll be darned if um, there wasn't about to be a field goal for victory, which there was. So much there for what I know. But it is a remarkable story. It's probably the biggest story in the NFL, along with a couple of bad coaching decisions, some people think, or the Dolphins might have gone into overtime and been more, uh, more perhaps capable of winning their match. 
Uh, but they're all very good games. And uh, it's, it's something that uh, I guess the NFL really needs to be commended for. They somehow have worked this out in terms of the draft and who they get and who gets what. And, and then the coaches. And certainly the Jacksonville Jaguars have worked out their coaching uh, deal with Peterson. He's been absolutely a magician for these guys. And particularly in, in having been a backup quarterback himself, um, he's become uh, a great teacher and mentor for young Trevor Lawrence. So we'll see how things go from here on out. All the games promising to be, of course, um, um, cliffhangers, really. I suspect they'll be very suspenseful. Tonight, of course, we'll have the Bucks against the Cowboys. That will be kind of a classic contest in that the Cowboys, you know, are the Cowboys. And, of course, um, the Bucks have, um, you know who, the greatest of all time, Brady, and he's still hanging around and still delivering. So that'll be a, uh, a contest tonight for you fans. And if you're not fans, it's going to be hard to avoid it because it's going to be filling up the airways. Locally, here on our Gators, um, surprising. The Gators men basketball team. Wow. They won. And um, unfortunately, the Gator girls, uh, the game I attended yesterday, um, they lost. And they could have won it, everybody thinks, because they're way out ahead. But in looking at the Gator girls, um, what they kind of need, and it's very, I was thinking about this, they need another good big lady down low and perhaps another really good guard, especially a shooting guard. Um, I got I to gotta think, I haven't researched this, but if you're a, a, a tall lady, a tall athletic lady who plays basketball, you could just about write your ticket because you would be in such high demand, particularly with this business going on now of name, image, and likeness and the transfer portal. Um, I would think that you would be in great demand. And, and I would think there'd only be a limited number of you. People with that type of talent, that type of height, that type of skill um, is um, really probably more difficult to find maybe than some of the other athletes we have um, in the different sports. But I'm not prepared to um, say that without more research. But it certainly seems clear that uh, those type of people are special. They have been special forever in the NBA. And now with this emphasis, growing emphasis on women's basketball, and I'm telling you, it's really growing. Um, there'll be more emphasis on the great, talented, tall females. The uh, uh, perhaps the most interesting thing I've run across about uh, athletics has to do with an injury severity uh, study because it's been on everybody's mind since uh, the a young man. Damar Hamlin uh, uh, died, really, on the field and was brought back to life. <clears throat> so there's been a lot of attention paid now and studies to injuries. And I know a lot of guys who have suffered concussions and played the game and lament, but they love the game, and it's a kind of a paradox for them. But Josh Zumbra for the Wall Street Journal last week uh, posted something called injury severity and 
It's not the rate, it's the severity that sets football apart. Uh, and of course, there's been renewed attention to this with the death on the field with DeMar Hamlin and then the bringing him back to life, the miraculous uh, uh, recovery. But of the four major professional sports in North America, um, believe it or not, football players have the lowest rate of injuries. It's surprising to you? Of the four major professional sports in North America, football players have the lowest rate of injuries. Now, over the course of a season, 30.8 injuries occur for every 100 National Football League players. That's compared with 38.8 injuries in the National Hockey League, 42 in Major League Baseball, and 72.9 in the NBA. Now, this is all according to a 2021 analysis of injuries that has been done across 13 seasons of professional sports from 2007 to 2020. So it's a pretty thorough data bank. So what does this mean? One of the conclusions you can take away from this study is that football injuries might be less frequent, but they are more severe. And the sports epidemiologists who study this stuff pay attention to the nuances in this data. Um, that database has 54,944 injuries over 13 years. And it's been com uh, compiled by the Wake Forest School of Medicine and uh, uh, co-studied by some people at the University of Nottingham. And they looked at injuries per 100 players per season. Now, what you realize right away is that some sports play far more games than others. And that's one of the key variables in trying to determine the risk of injury in a sport. The statistics for football players if they played as many games, say, as the baseball players do, which, of course, they don't, would be horrible. And that's one of the reasons. An inference from this is that this seems to be insatiable appetite to extend the football season by having playoffs and this, that, one, and another is significantly placing the players at more of an injury risk. So when you increase the number of games, you increase the risk of injury. Now, in football, basketball, in all sports really, but especially in football, since their injuries are more serious. Basketball injuries are largely to the knee or the ankle. And they're responsible for 14 injuries per 100 players per season, followed by, <clears throat> followed by 12 to the groin, <clears throat> hip, or thigh area, and eight to the trunk. 
back or buttocks. Invariably, the injuries are a result in basketball of jumping. There is so much jumping in basketball and know not what you come down on. Somebody else's foot the wrong way or this, that, one, another. That is where the primary force is behind the injuries in basketball. Now in baseball, it's the throwing. For every 100 players, nearly nine injuries occur to the groin, hip, or thigh, 7.5 to the forearm, wrist, or hand, and seven to the arm, shoulder, or elbow. And the most common injuries in hockey are to the back and the groin. But the most common injuries for football players are to the groin, hip, or thigh, 6.5 for every 100 players, and to the knees at six for every 100 players. But by far, the sport which has the most severe injury is football because of the concussion. Uh, it is the sport which has the so-called catastrophic injury. And occasionally, there's something even more catastrophic than the concussion, and that is what happened to Hamlin of the Bills from the blunt trauma on the, on the field. That's extremely rare. It generates fewer than 30 cases a year nationwide. And there are millions of people who play sports at all levels of this game. But it is um, thought to be most frequent if it occurs in baseball when a baseball player takes a projectile directly to the chest. But the concussion presents the highest combination of both danger and frequency. And the NFL has the highest rate. It has 3.5 concussions per 100 players per season compared with 3.2 for hockey, 1.7 for basketball, and 0.4 for baseball. So the reported concussions also have been climbing sharply in football, especially in the NFL, since the NFL, largely through efforts by the Players Union, has introduced and strengthened its protocols for returning to play after potential head injuries. This was definitely a factor in the Dolphins game yesterday when their first uh, team player quarterback, Tua, was not allowed to play. Now, if you go study the retired players um, in football, 50% of them will tell you, and that doesn't account for the ones who don't, that they had suffered head injuries that they didn't report at the time. So um, we don't know how many concussions were underreported, especially in high school football where a lot of things are not as well medically attended to as we have in the NFL. But there is a trend now uh, at the college and high school level to really understand sports injuries uh, and collect the data uh, that has not been a trend until recently. 
Now, the National Collegiate Athletic Association has been using a simple pen and paper system. And in the pen and paper system, a sample of athletic trainers filled out a pair of injury reports on paper, one for their own files, and one they were supposed to fax or mail to the NCAA, where somebody had to enter it manually into a database. Well, it was a system, but it was cumbersome, and one can recognize that there were many opportunities for data entry errors. It was not until a few years ago that the NCAA began to use an online system called the Injury Surveillance Program. And here, there's uh, being introduced uh, by electronic introduction, of course, and uh, that has been the push to report injuries. Now, there's now a system for high schools known as the High School Reporting Information Online, and it's modeled after this one that the NCAA has come up with. So those surveys have found that most injuries and the worst injuries, once again, are in football. In high school, the rate of concussion is highest in football, followed closely by girls' soccer, where the concussion rate actually exceeds football. Never thought of that before, but you're hitting that ball in your head. So that is kind of the latest study that I've been able to run across about what is going on with injuries in the athletic world. And there's a paradox. The, hem the helmets are thicker and bigger, but they're also more of a battering ram. You know, once upon a time, the game was played with leather helmets, no suspension, no face masks. And over time, uh, they began to develop face masks. Uh, I think the Cleveland Browns were the first ones to introduce it to protect Otto Graham. And then that became standard. And now those are uh, in and of themselves also pretty significant weapons when used, if you will. So it's a two-edged deal there on uh, what can happen in, uh, in uh, athletics when you have injuries. <clears throat> Excuse me. Cold weather has been causing everybody a little bit of congestion. So that's uh, my report on injury severity. Locally, uh, we have, of course, if you've been paying attention, um, the discovery of uh, a fellow who was the mayor of uh, Gainesville back in the early 2012 or 13 era, I think it was, um, uh, Craig Lowe who was found um, after a couple of days of not uh, being heard from by friends, I assume, uh, deceased. And it's always, you know, it's always sad to know that someone died alone. You, you don't ever know really what went on and before the actual death of the person. I have a couple of friends who, um, one whom was not discovered for four days happened to be kind of a reclusive person. And uh, so the first couple of days, um, friends wouldn't even notice the absence of this individual. And um, after a while, in this case of this person, it was four or five days. You just don't know what kind of suffering people go through 
what kind of struggle or whether they just dropped. Um, that's one of the reasons people carry these things up, fall, and can't get up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but still, if you're, if you're the type of person who is uh, kind of a solitary figure to begin with, uh, as Craig Lowe apparently was, uh, I knew Craig, and um, he, uh, he was really kind of emblematic of a period in Gainesville that was uh, sort of um, coming out, so to speak, and tolerating people like him as their political leaders. Um, he embodied many of the uh, priorities that the town really wanted to engage in, bicycling, uh, a, bright, a bright man, um, a gay fellow um, with his own demons, and people tolerated that. And probably the most famous incident that occurred in Craig's life was when he ran through the stop sign uh, and um, the sheriff department came along and the, on tape, the lady said, um, who are you? And Craig said, I'm the mayor. And she said, oh, we'll handle this differently. That created quite a stir, quite a stir. But out of that, I was on the radio at that time. We covered that event. But out of that, we learned that a custodian of uh, an incident in the law enforcement world has a lot of power at every level of it. Um, for example, um, ASO could choose that deputy and give Mr. Lowe a ride home. That would be handling it differently. Once upon a time, that was sort of standard behavior in the city of Gainesville. If you were a young college guy and you got kind of crossways in the road with your behavior, uh, these guys kind of took you home. They didn't arrest you. They just kind of looked after you and took you home. Um, so that was sort of the scuttlebutt that occurred out of that. It was all on camera and people hollered foul. But it's actually a discretionary decision, as I understand it, as I learned it then, that every level of law enforcement has. Um, you can drop it or you can accentuate it. And we've seen examples of it being accentuated. Um, perhaps the most Glaring example recently is the use of the SWAT team in the raid at Colliers International. That decision to do that was done by the police. Conversely, they could have easily decided not to. Or all along the chain of custody, if you will, of the incident, there is discretionary leeway. So that was probably the thing I learned most ironically, by the way from Craig Lowe's situation, that um, yes, the, the law enforcement officer, she was correct. She could handle it differently. Um, then of course, the public sentiment is, well, why should a politician get handled differently? Um, why, why should they get special treatment? And of course, the most famous example we probably know right now uh, is Hunter Biden, which we'll cover a little bit. Uh, in a minute, but uh, that's probably the opposite end of the spectrum. Why should you get special treatment? If you're a politician, in his case, he's the son of a politician. So newspapers, they decide to print or not to print. It's not so bad when they decide not to print. It's so bad, it's more, ba it's more damaging when they decide to print that which is not true. <clears throat> and that's what's been going on so often now, as we know, we've been covering uh, with the political intrusion into news reporting. 
So Mr. Craig Lowe was a, uh, I, 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 was, I knew him and interacted with him on some occasions uh, uh, and um, found him to be a gentle soul, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, a little out of the mainstream, which was tolerated well in the city of Gainesville. And uh, he was he was the mayor. So um, it is uh, it's unfortunate, you know, the thing that bothers me the most about that is that he was alone. And um, during that time, no one really knows what kind of struggle he went through. Um, the 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 whole idea of this is if you are alone, I would say, make sure you stay in touch with your friends and make sure your friends know whatever is going on with you, because that's what you got friends for. And hopefully they'll come and help you out. We don't know if, if Craig Lowe's life could have been saved. Uh, I'm not even sure what the. No, I don't know what the report is that he died from, but um, maybe there was a possibility to save him. Um, we want to, uh, of course, acknowledge uh, 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 the Martin Luther King Day, which we'll do in a moment. Now, oddly enough, as you might find it odd, I'm going to work it in, uh, so to speak, with the weather, because the weather was very important to uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And um, you might not know how it was important, but it, it is, um, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm always looking for a way to uh, present the weather in a way <laughs> that's just not the weather. Uh, the weather is the weather, of course. And the biggest thing lately is that man thinks he can control it. And uh, I've got news for man. Man's not going to be able to control it. Um, the biggest thing that controls the climate that I've been able to read uh, are the planets, and in particular the sun, and the uh, heating and whatever is going on in the sun has a lot to do with the gigantic uh, climactic conditions on the Earth. Uh, our tampering with the weather uh, is very, very insignificant compared with what the constellations have to do with the weather, over which we have no control. So. If you don't believe all this, just take a look at trying to stop a tornado. Uh, if we really had control over the weather, it's always occurred to me that one of the th first things we'd better uh, learn how to control is the tornado. Uh, that thing is really, and if you take a look at Alabama and the awesome damage is done right across through Selma and places like that, uh, you know it's probably um, um, one of the most, the winds in that are over 200 miles an hour. Um, you know, the strange stories that come out of it. And uh, it's frightening. And it comes along. And if we could do something about changing the weather, I, I would assume uh, that would be one of the first things we would do. Uh, if we could change the series of cyclones that are coming into California now, if there really were the ability for man to influence the weather, uh, that would be another place that we would start, no doubt to try to influence the weather. So it's uh, it's not, uh, it's kind of a sentimentality to think that you're going to be able to go out there. And uh, of course I have a funny thing that I do on Facebook and that's the Naked Rain Dance. And it's a kind of a fun thing to do, but it's also a spoof on the hubris of man thinking he can change the weather. Uh, so, um, 
that that is something that that uh, we'll still hear more about. And we're going to hear about it after the bottom of the hour break. Of all things, the gas stove. I'm going to have a little segment on the gas stove after the bottom of the hour break. Golly, you wouldn't believe it. Well, patronize our sponsors here. Style, Style Cuts, the official barber of the, uh, I hope the barber is not a wrong word, of uh, the Ward Scott Files. We partner with the Logical Chronicle, does a tremendous job of keeping you up to date on the news. And of course, crime prevention protects us on the spot cleaners, uh, R&R construction, uh, shoot GTR. Uh, we've got some people and all those of you who donate to us, we thank you very much. And uh, we keep a note on who you are. So we'll be right back in a moment. We'll break a couple of minutes early for the bottom of the hour weather and come back and talk a little bit about how the weather influenced uh, Dr. King's speech in August. Uh, and then, of course, um, talk a little bit about that speech itself. Be right back on the Ward Scott Files. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's gonna come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. All right, Ward's Weather Report brought to you by Lewis Oil. Uh, Appreciate their sponsorship tremendously. 
I'm going to talk about the weather, as I said a moment ago, on uh, in terms of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, you know, I never thought of this until I got to researching this a little bit. Of course, uh, I remember the I Have a Dream speech very, very well. I remember all of that. Um, I was going to military school in Selma, outside of Selma, Alabama, in 1959, 1960, 61, along in there. I know exactly where the Pettus Bridge is. I know all that very, very well. Uh, my folks were living in Montgomery, Alabama. I know all that very, very well with Rosa Park, all that. I know it, lived it, was right there for it. And uh, watched all this become a national movement with uh, sins and things of this nature. And um, looking back on it now, I guess it's about 60 years, almost 60 years. Um, it's hard to imagine. By golly, I was around for that. But um, um, it's interesting that uh, how much the weather has played in every momentous occurrence in history. Um, for example, um, the weather on D-Day during World War II, um, that all was involved. But in 1963, let me pull my computer over here a little bit. Uh, in 1963, uh, at the Lincoln Memorial, um, of course, uh, King addressed a crowd of 250,000 people. Back then, we had, of course, television. We had black and white television. And I remember watching this. And, of course, that's the uh, moment when he made the I Have a Dream speech. There are a couple of things that King delivered that are classic. And one of them is a letter from Birmingham jail. We teach that as a as a um, a way to use effective argument. It's a classic piece of work. Very well written, very bright man, very articulate man. And what people don't remember, a Christian man, and how did uh, black folk become Christian? Black folk became Christian because uh, to be Christian in that day when the 1600s, the 1700s, all that, was to be civilized. To be not Christian was to be uncivilized. So the first thing you did for folks that you brought in from Africa was to, quote unquote, civilize those people and as to teach them the Christian religion. And boy, did that ever take. Look at the great, great singers. We even call it soul music, soul music, Otis Redding. Um, Ray Charles, um, I mean, that's just a couple that come to mind right off the bat. Um, you, you just Whitney Houston, uh, Aretha Franklin. This is all music that was born in the choirs and the churches. Um, so this was a tremendous civilizing influence on everyone, black and white. That was the basic ethic of the time. It was not a secular world. You were evaluated by how uh, civilized you were. And if you were civilized, you were Christian. In Hamlet, in Act 5, in the grave digger scene, there's the great line that says, what, art thou a heathen? A heathen is someone who has no spiritual compass, has no spiritual post of observation or reference, uh, the principle of which would be in Western Europe and our land of English-speaking nations. Uh, Christianity. So uh, the in 1963, there
there were 250,000 people there. And uh, it was an amazingly uh, helpful day weather-wise. It was a normal midsummer day. Um, people had put their feet in the reflecting pool to cool off, but the body heat of 250,000 had caused an abnormal spike in the temperature of their crowd. And the cool marble of the Lincoln Memorial uh, encouraged people to cool off in that. But the hottest month, had King delivered that speech in July, it would have been almost unbearable. Um, that would have been too hot for the speech. So the, as the weather in the city that day uh, turned out, it was not a typically hot, humid summer day. The temperature was mild and the dew point was low. It averaged 73 degrees with the hottest part of the day being from 1 to 4 p.m. when it reached 80 degrees. So it was a pleasant summer day. And of course, the Washington Post got it all wrong. They described it as one with high temperatures, stifling humidity, hundreds cooling off their soaking feet, et cetera, et cetera, being carried away according to heat exhaustion. Dada dada, typical kind of flamboyant reporting. But when you look at the photographs and you read it, accounts of the event, um, that day was not a hot and humid day. Um, it was abnormally cool, as a matter of fact. Um, it was also dependent upon how you dressed. If you were in a suit or otherwise dressed up, of course, as many people did in 1963, uh, you might have heated up more quickly than if you were in cotton shorts and a T-shirt. So it is a, if you put it in proper perspective, uh, the weather was a, a great asset to King's speech that day. And uh, the, uh, um, the, 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 a lot of people don't re really realize what weather has to do with just things that we take for granted. Oh, sometimes we'll see it in a sporting event and the Gators are playing in the rain and all that. Now, the speech itself by King is pretty interesting in that it uses a word which you're not allowed, I guess, or it's not, see, words have denotations and they have connotations. Denotations are the definition, dictionary definition of the word. Connotations are the value of that a culture assigns to a word. And the word that was of value in King's speech is the word Negro. The word Negro, and I just quickly went through and counted up the number of times Dr. King uses that word. He uses it about 12 to 13 times. Uh, he uses black and white when he wants to talk about white men and black men. And he uses black probably three or four times throughout the speech, but primarily he uses the word Negro. Uh, now, of course, the connotations are, I suppose, of that word in some contexts, uh, you know, are not the appropriate word. The National Association for Colored People, for example, NAACP, colored people. I don't see any place in, in this speech unless I'm missing it, and I have it here before me, where King uses the concept of the word colored people. Um, he really wants to isolate and identify Negro people as a particular subset of the culture. 
that should be a part of the main culture. And that's the point. The other thing that he has is a wonderful kind of analogy here, the use of a promissory note. And he understands that America is a materialistic, capitalistic country, and that the way out of the ghetto, so to speak, a way out of the uh, poverty, a way out of being um, you know, up and up, you know, is still the American dream. I have a dream as the American dream. Um, that that is one of the things that you get out of this speech that you don't hear enough of now. Um, the American dream is that you give us the opportunities as Negroes, as he uses the term, and we will absolutely do well. And he uses in that case a uh, an analogy of the promissory note. He says, and I quote him, it is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color, there he does use the word color, are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. Um, the promissory note he's talking about is he, in the previous paragraph, he says, uh, the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were a promissory note that promised that all men would begin guaranteed the inalienable rights of liberty, uh, life, and pursuit of happiness. So he picks up on that and makes that a promissory note and then says, the bank of justice is bankrupt. The country has not been uh, exercised fairness and justice by allowing us to cash that check just as all the other uh, uh, borrow, use that promissory note just as the rest of the people have. We have been told there's insufficient funds for us. And he says, so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us demand upon demand, the riches of freedom and the security of justice. He was a very good speechwriter. Um, uh, you know, this is from biblical training. The great rhetoric that he studied comes from the Bible. It's called the Great Protestant Flood. Um, William Faulkner, much, much of the Bible you hear echoed in William Faulkner. Um, this, was the, this was the value of the country. And if I had to editorialize, I think this is the thing that's been lost. Uh, poor white and black. And it's been demeaned. And it's been secularized and uh, de uh, even demonized. Uh, and, and yet, when you see a fellow go down on the field like the Hamlin player did, you'll see just how far that demonization goes. That was black and white player together praying for a black human being. I, I, I'm sure that King would be enormously proud of that moment. So this was a, um, a mild summer day compared to what it could have been. And uh, uh, this, was, uh, this was the context in which this speech was given in August. And I, I have to say that um, it's one of the classics. It's, it's, it, it's definitely probably more than anything else that we know King for. Uh, is the reason we have a Martin Luther King Day. I would say we have a Martin Luther King Day because of his great 
writing and speaking skills. Not because, you know, he was a champion of, you know, race baiting or anything like that. That's not, that wasn't his, that wasn't his approach. In fact, he took the passive resistance approach that he learned from Gandhi and from Christianity. And he, in the sit-ins that occurred, he said, when they come and yank you off the stools and beat you and bring uh, violence to you, don't resist. Do not resist. And he had a good reason. He said that human nature sooner or later will champion the underdog. And if you don't fight back, you'll become known as the underdog and people will rally to protect you. When King was assassinated, that all went out the window. And black power, power is the, op the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is power. Black power throughout. Man, I saw it. I couldn't believe they did it. Black power throughout every bit of spiritual strength, in my humble opinion, that black folks had when they, black power, took over the movement. That changed it. Now you're going to home, you're going to come at me with a gun, you're going to come at me with power. I got no choice but to come at you with power. What a divisive, divisive uh, approach that is. King would never have let that happen. I think it's one of the great, great uh, tragedies of human culture that that spirituality has been re replaced with power. We see it all through the halls of Congress, everywhere in Congress. They're not interested in talking and negotiating in uh, reaching out. They're interested in power. They want power. That's what is stymied Congress. That's what stopped Congress. Um, we have fewer and fewer people around who, who knew these moments, as I did. I was just a kid, you know, but I'd been raised in a, in, a, in a Christian church. I knew the values. I knew exactly what he was talking about. And I saw it absolutely thrown aside during his unfortunate uh, assassination. Um, we need somebody to come back. But these kind of guys don't get created out, but every once in a while. We need somebody to come back and recreate a spiritual humility for these power-hungry people in Congress that will put them in a place where they have empathy and understanding for other points of view. It's all through the university system. We've been reporting on it. It's entrenched and nobody seems, certainly Biden's not gonna do it. Absolutely not gonna do it. I don't know where it's gonna come from, but I certainly wanna put that out there as my two cents on uh, this particular day. Well, of all things, I entitled today's show, More Culture Wars and Culture Wars are going to continue as long as we have people who are um, kind of in control, who are interested in their way or the highway. I never thought I'd live to see the day, but you know, that's can apply to a lot of things that this climate war would talk about banning gas stoves. 
You know, cooking with gas, we have a saying, now you're cooking with gas. Cooking with gas, you can regulate that flame to all sorts of nuanced levels. Restaurants have to cook with gas. There's no other way you can create fine culinary dishes without cooking with gas. And now cometh before us, before the, before the pulpit of climate change is the move to ban gas stoves. And these people are serious about this. And they're claiming we don't even have pilot lights anymore. We have electronic ignition. Uh, natural gas in the city of Gainesville is one of the most plentiful th things you can get. You want to heat with gas. Of course, you know, uh, the climate warriors led by Hanrahan and her crowd stomped that out, stomped that out because it was part of a fossil fuel. Plentiful. We got it. We got it all over the, uh, the country. Um, very efficient. When I lived in town, uh, we heated with gas. We cooked with gas. And uh, um, we had gas, we had a gas stove in my home when we lived in, in Gainesville. So this is a um, Consumer Product Safety Commission has now become totally politicized, if it wasn't before, and is going to go out to ban gas stoves. Now, the progressive city, which is a term that has been a recent phenomenon we're all familiar with, uh, Berkeley, San Francisco, New York City. They've already banned gas stoves and appliances in the buildings in New York. Um, now, the uh, New York governor, who obviously has bought into all this stuff, has proposed a ban on gas equipment in new small buildings and the larger ones starting in 2025. And um, come 2030, New Yorkers will not be allowed to replace their gas stoves with new ones if they break down. You're gonna be forced by the government, okay? You're gonna be forced by the government to transition to another source of energy, which is fossil fuel, and that's electricity. So this is the left's green energy transition. And even more so, come 2035, New Yorkers and Californians won't be able to buy gasoline-powered cars, new gasoline-powered cars. Now, the Biden administration's all in on this. Um, this is uh, it, this is order to uh, uh, um, you know get along with the with the climate people. The real pollution from cooking, according to a study here that is being done uh, in the opinion page of the Wall Street Journal, is uh, coming from not having proper ventilation. It doesn't come from the natural gas. So. Now we're there. We're, now we're, though, in the middle of this culture war. I don't know if, if a Republican Congress can do it, a Republican House can do anything about it, but climate has become uh, the uh, one of the core cultural identities for the left, if you can believe it, my friends. So, uh, Furthermore, the culture war is probably responsible, and I've been studying this, um, for the Federal Aviation Administration's 
um, failure to keep the planes flying here in the last few days. The study has shown, as people have taken a look at the FAA, that the Federal Aviation Administration's, according to Washington Examiner, latest budget has outlined millions of dollars for inclusive language. Now, what this has got to do with planes flying safely when we go from point A to point B, somebody needs to tell me. This language is in racial equity, environmental justice, and climate change. The money has gone to put this into the language of the FAA at the expense of needed uh, computer system upgrades. Uh, the system is about 30 years old, and it's not on track to be updated for another six years. Uh, yet, the FAA 2023 budget requests include spending millions on inclusive language, and the pilots are upset about this. They don't see what this has to do with safe flying. Of course, you've got Pete Buttigieg, Transportation Secretary, a political plum appointment, uh, knows little about what he's doing. So uh, the money has not been spent on technological updates. And uh, this has been more than anything else, according to the pilots, a, a, the reason why the technology broke down. No update on the requirement for uh, the air mission system. Um, this is something that uh, is really uh, going to be um, looked at a little more closely. Whether anything will be done about it, I don't know. The other place in where you see the culture war of all places, plastic. You know, now plastic has become the bad thing. It always harkens us back to The Graduate, the movie that came out with Dustin Hoffman in 1967, where Dustin Hoffman is just graduated. He he's by a pool with an older person who's advising him on what to do with his degree. And the man tells Dustin Hoffman, the student, to get into plastics. Plastics is where it's going to be. Well, indeed, let's just think about plastics. It's a key component in everything. Look around where you are right now and try to find something that's not plastic. Uh, it's used practically everywhere. But pl plastic is pervasive. It is uh, essential. It is um, made a huge impact on the culture. So if you try to avoid plastics at the grocery store, uh, it's going to be tough to do. Go through there and try to find. And yet the climate change people are claiming that um, the climate is being affected by plastic. And indeed, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, this plastic doesn't biodegrade. It's uh, responsible for killing marine life. And it's in the, in the food chain. But I can't figure out how we're going to get rid of it. Now, I'm old enough to remember pretty much when we didn't have plastic. So we can do away with it. But I suspect doing away with plastic would be a bigger cultural shift 
than doing away with the internal combustion engine. Um, it, I don't, I, this is a high ambition to end plastic pollution. Um, international conversations going on about it, uh, but nothing's proven effective. Um, environmental treaties don't have any impact. And that's another element of the culture war. The culture war. Um, well, well, well. Let's just talk for a moment as we conclude today about Hunter Biden. Maybe we're going to get, you know, that you have to be careful. This is an excellent example of be careful what you do to others because others might do it to you. And we have a golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, by going after Trump, evidently, the Democrats never realized they could be gone after too. Now the New York Post is uh, commenting that Hunter Biden recorded monthly rent payments of $49,910 while living at his father's residence. And it appears that Hunter paid $49,910 in monthly rent for one year while living at Biden's Delaware residence where the classified documents were kept with the Corvette. He listed his rental tenancy from March 2017 to February 2018. And the document was signed July 2018. So there you go. There you go. Now, um, it should be noted that Joe Biden's 2017 tax return listed only $19,800 in rents received. And in 2018, it listed no rents received. So, you know, if you go after Trump and examine all that, let's go after Joe and examine all that as well. Um, um, we'll see. Um, a lot of this is suspicious because uh, it was wire transfers and wire transfers, according to the article here, have uh, been the, the, the uh, um, money launderer's choice of moving money. Um, there have been some wire transactions uh, involving more than $10,000 and this kind of stuff. So um, it's going to be kind of interesting if the wheels come off and, and what is good for the goose is good for the gander. Well, have a great day today. Stay warm. We hope you have a um, um, good afternoon and all the above. Warthog Command Center out.